Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Once again, thanks for joining us here at Faith in Your Recovery, Season 2. This is Episode 57. Uh, We want to remind you, it might do you a lot of good to go back to Episode 56 because this is a follow-up on that, just the second chapter, and we'll see where this takes us. But we're talking to a gentleman by the name of Matt Pazzarelli. Welcome, Matt. Good to be here, Randy, again. Good. Love you guys. Well, thank you. Uh, we're coming to love you more and more. Uh, let me share with you. Matt's name is an assumed name. He was born John Franzese, a former member of the New York City's Colombo crime family. If you go back to episode 56, you'll get that story about his upbringing, his younger years. He's the youngest son of Sonny Franzese, New York's last mafia boss. Uh, He entered the family business as a teenager after his older brother Michael sat him down at a Chinese restaurant in Long Island and introduced him to their way of life. John Franzese Jr. would spend the next 15 years in the mob but eventually saw his life fall apart due to alcohol and addiction. He spent the 1990s slumming the streets in New York City, begging for hits off crack pipes, sleeping in subway tunnels, and HIV positive from a dirty needle he jabbed into his arm. He got sober on October 9, 2001, and in his quest to clean up his life, eventually became an FBI informant testifying against his father in federal court in the year 2010. He entered witness protection and has lived in Indianapolis as Matt Pazzarelli the last 13 years. Let's get back to his story, okay? And one more time, make sure you go back to episode 56 and get the groundwork for all of this because one without the other just not going to work as well for you. And we're excited about what he has shared and what he's about to share. Let me start off with a question, kind of going back to early life, just to bring the folks up to date. What's one of your favorite childhood memories? And you you can label childhood as you please, whatever age that might be. Well, I'll go with this one. Uh, I don't think, I don't know if there has to be one f- completely favorite but uh one thing i always loved was sunday dinner over my grandmother's when all of us were there all my brothers and sisters and uh my mom and dad and even when my dad was in jail we uh we did really good at sunday dinners (laughs) I, i always looked forward to it how many people would be there so to speak Matt. Well, I, I'd say a minimum of 13 or 14 on any given Sunday. 
So there had to be a lot of food prepared and probably some good ca- good cooks in that family, yes? Yeah, there were. There's, you know, you can go to the movies and you could read the books and uh, the, about Sunday dinners, uh, the Italian style, but I, I don't think it's indigenous to only Italians. But sure. Yeah, my grandmother could cook and so could my mother and my dad was a good cook too. Did you have a favorite food? I was a pasta guy, yeah. Uh, Spaghetti. Uh, my mother started making uh, uh, ling- uh, brisuta sauce, which a lot of people don't make. And uh, my grandmother would make me uh, crab sauce, blue claw crabs. It's the sweetest sauce you could make. The only restaurant ever made that was a restaurant in Williamsburg that's still open a hundred years later. Uh, a lot of wise guys. Went there, the Sopranos, tons of movies are filled in there. And they'd have on a Friday night the blue uh, crab sauce special with linguine. And I have to tell you this because it's kind of funny. Uh, Sonny Black from the movie Donnie Brasco, a captain with the Bananos, is who I'd go to dinner with every Friday. He introduced me. I didn't know they had it on Fridays. And uh, we got friendly and we'd go to dinner together every Friday. Interesting, interesting. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, To bring the folks up to date, your brother set you down at the age of 16, told you that he had just been, what was that word again, proposed? Uh, No? I think made a, we we called it made a good fellow. Made a good fellow. He got made. That's how we would say it. This guy got made. Like, no one would... Would like my brother's the only one that ever told me he got made, but we were close. But everyone else, nobody would tell you. But then we would we would figure it out and go, oh, he got made. So tell the folks who maybe are just tuning in for the first time what a good fellow is. A good fellow is an actual uh, initiated, completed uh, member of organized a specific organized crime family. You get made into a family. Remember that Matt's stories he shares it today is about crime, addiction, and forgiveness. So you hear that word crime come up, but uh, that was his past. That's changed. We'll talk about that as we move forward here. You were a member of the mob for how many years? Well, it, it began uh, around 16 or 17 in a small way, but it, it got... It got very real immediately. I mean, Michael took me out. When Michael got made a good fellow, my father was still in jail. So when you made a good fellow, you got to be put with a captain. Michael's captain was Andrew Russo. And all of Andrew's crew, when Michael had to be with Andrew till my dad came out, because you can't be a lone made member. You have to be under somebody. And a captain's considered an official. Uh... So you have to be put there. So Michael would take me out with Andrew's crew. And, you know, you asked me a question earlier, how did it feel? There was also a sense of having a license. Like all of a sudden, the rules in school didn't quite matter. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, making money, you could lie. I mean, there's one thing a good fellow has. We look you straight in the face. Now, we're not supposed to lie to each other. Um, not that I was a good fellow. I was only proposed, but you're allowed to lie. You're allowed to tell someone you're going to be their partner and your bottom line is you're going to 
You're going to take, you want his business somewhere along the line. You're going to set him up. You, you know, you're allowed to lie to make money. And, you know, it was like blatant. That's how you do and succeed at deception. Yeah. Um, you become skilled at it. So, Matt, by family standards, how good were you at your job? I was pretty good. Uh, it went along. I, I, I think I developed a kind of personality like my dad. He was very uh, outgoing and easy to approach, believe it or not. I mean, he knew how to fend off where, you know, you could be so outgoing and, 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 uh, and stuff and easy to be around and at the same time close people, know how to close people. Like, you don't know me like that. You know how to set people before they get to that point um, <clears throat> when people are getting next to you. Uh, I, was, I was really good at meeting a lot of people. I was really, really good. My job was to meet whoever I could, see who we were going to shake down, see how they could benefit us, and bring them in to my dad and ultimately to Michael. I mean, my dad always referred me, he says, well, give this guy to Michael, um, which meant let Michael earn with him. He'll be the one making the money. You, you get your piece for bringing him in. That was kind of my function. Uh, that's what I was best at. As a matter of fact, when I'd be drinking and using on the street in the 90s, um, I'd have no shoes in 20-degree weather walking around drooling, you know, drooling, just shaking my head. And and somehow I'd get arrested or get sick. I'd go to the hospital, go to jail, come out a week later, and I'd be not drinking. And four days later, I'd be at the executive floor at Sony. Sony Music. My cousin Jerry used to say, I've never seen nothing like this guy. I saw him two weeks ago. He was begging me for 75 cents. The other day I seen him. I was up on the executive floor at Sony Music. He's, There's no one like him. He gets to everybody. As a matter of fact, I could be walking around begging and people would look for me and go, listen, you think if I give you some money, will you make a few calls? I need to speak to somebody. So you did have a knack. I, and a, I had a, a knack. A gift and a talent with people, I obviously. Ha I had a gift there, yeah. Being my father's son helped the name John Francis. I have to think that opened a lot of doors, and then your personality, style, and gifts kept the door open. R ridiculously, it, it was an asset. Remember, a lot of people knew that being around us made money for them, too. Yes. Enhanced yes. what they were doing, and... Uh, so uh, I'm not saying it was it was it was not it it was their fault, but they never realized the extent of what they were getting into. Exactly. They thought, "Ooh, our business will do better." Yeah, it'll do better, but you may do 25 years in jail, and we'll see you later. Or you may get a beaten, or you may end up nobody could find you. I yeah. mean, you know. Yeah. They, you don't realize it. It could do better, but there was going to be a cost to doing There's better. There's going to be a cost to doing Absolutely. better. Absolutely. So, uh, what did your family's involvement and your involvement in crime look like? Give it some labels, if you would. Well, it, it may sound crazy. Initially, I, I felt the need to prove myself. Um, I don't think I was as tough as I thought I wanted to be. 
As a matter of fact, I always felt like Michael and my dad had an edge over me, and I never wanted them to know that. And I became, in a lot of ways, a bit of a bully. Uh, and you know, bullies are, are generally scared. And when you're scared, you do worse things because you want to prove that you're not scared. And uh, don't forget, I had a lot of advantage. There were guys around me that would do anything that I, I would do or that I asked them to do. And if it made me look tough and not bad, I would utilize that. Um, a lot of intimidating people because of who I was um, would serve my purpose. I, I mean, looking back now, you know, it's hard because sitting here, sometimes I get attached to the emotions of the way things were, and it seems funny, and it and it seems fun, and like I used to drive around with people that never in the car with me yet, and they were getting close with us, and I'd go, what do you see? What do you mean, what do I see? There's a, there's a, a food store, there's a restaurant, there's a car lot. I said, no, from now on, you see money. You see our money, potential money everywhere. And I used to love that feeling. So your favorite sign was the dollar sign that you saw. It the the dollar sign was person. was a big deal. Um, uh, it, it was a big deal to look up to. Um, I uh, So looking back, uh, the way I say it is not the way I necessarily felt back then. And sometimes like... Uh, when I talk about uh, hurting people, I remember the adrenaline and how good it felt uh, and how right I thought it was and, you know, stupid words like cool or the reputation you get, and the respect, and, and I feel that again. And I, I, it's really hard for me to, to process that today um, because it's, it's really repulsive. Um, I mean, I, I had to turn off a show I was watching last night. I, I watch a lot of good shows at night, shows that move me and have happy endings where enemies make up or wives and husbands that don't like each other realize they're in love. And for some strange reason, and my, I should have known because my cat got off the couch when I put it on and walked in the other room. He don't like these kind of shows either. <laughs> and it was El Chapo. And I'm watching it, and I find myself rooting for him, rooting for him, shooting at the guys that he's at war with. And, and man, it, it, just, it just overwhelmed me. I got kind of really, I didn't feel well, and I shut it off um, because I remember. It was a reminder, a trigger of where you had been and what you had been about. And yes. I had been about, and, uh, you know, the world today is different, the P.I. It's like I respect life. It's, it's not my life to look at that way uh, other than other people. During that time in your life, how did you divide between good and bad, or was it just dollar signs? No, it was good and bad. There was, there was uh, a gangster's morals, <laughs> um, which is kind of weird. But there was a lot of things to it uh, that made sense. Uh, um. Like, one of the things that, that are funny is, you know how you watch shows and you think that people get paid to kill people? Yes. Not true. None of it's true. Anyone 
I never knew one person, and I knew a lot of killers, that ever got paid for killing somebody. If you're in our crew and someone asks you to kill someone, you do it because you love the family. You love your guy. You do it because of that, because this is our life. And let's just say me and you are friends and someone pays you to kill Mr. Sam, right? Then maybe one day someone will pay you enough money to kill me. You can't trust someone who gets paid to kill somebody. Their loyalty is to the money, not to the family. Another thing sounds crazy. Um, that's why we were told to shake down the owners of strip clubs. But you could never take a dollar from a woman. We had a word. I, I think the word my father used to say, don't ever become this. Don't ever let anyone tell you this, call you this. Uva dent. It's like filthy, dirty. Any man that could take money from a woman is no good. You don't sit with them. You don't talk that to them. That was as low as you could go. Go. That for my, I don't know if it's an Italian thing back in Italy. I, I don't know. I'd never seen it with such force. But a lot of my dad's friends, well, that was one thing. Oh, they really didn't like that. Didn't tolerate that. Nope. They thought it was a weakness, a, a terrible weakness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I ended up doing that anyway, drinking and getting high. And I didn't necessarily take money from her or make her go work uh, to sell her body. But she had a really good job. And for some strange reason, she liked me and we smoked crack together. And for two years, she pretty much supported me using crack, she was half separated, just screwing up her life and letting her pay for me. Let's just stay in that direction. Let's get into that part of your life where the drugs, the alcohol, even in a greater way, the addiction stepped in and started to take things over, take charge. After that, we're going to move forward to your going state's evidence on your dad, how that played out. Then we're going to wrap it up, whether it's this episode or the next, with your faith journey and some questions. So... You're talking about her. Uh, you're talking about how you relied on her for finances to get you what you needed. Tell us that story, how you got got into the depths of that depravity. I met her through a friend. We, we had both not been getting high. We went to a nightclub called 231. I think the guy's name was Larry. And he introduced me to her. She had been a friend of his. Turns out she used to smoke crack, too. Me and Larry started drinking. She started drinking. Uh, Larry had to go somewhere. He was married. His, his wife would always give him a hard time, and he ended up asking if she could take me home. She lent me $20. We drove to Jamaica, Queens. I bought four vials of crack. We... I think my mother was away. I brought her into my house. I didn't want her to know I was smoking the crack. I figured we'd just fool around together. And while I'm doing that, she mentioned she wanted to get high. And we got high. And then we're looking at each other when we ran out. And she said she had to get home. They were separated, but they hadn't really settled it. I didn't care. We ended up in Brooklyn, went to a hotel three days later. And for like the next two years... 
I would call her. She would call me. I when she was trying to get better, I would call her. I mean, I mean, this is what I became. And the, the, you know, I I had to drink and I had to get high. And I'm sorry that you're trying to have a life, but I know that if I edge you on, you might break down and 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 come. I mean, I you know, it, she made it easy. She had a lot of money, <laughs> a lot of money. So what? What had happened to your money source? How did that dry up? Well, my money source would come and go. Um, I had this uncanny ability to get back on my feet. Nothing like it was in the 80s when when Michael and my dad were both out and about. Nothing like that anymore. I mean, that was just ridiculous. Uh, but, uh, but eventually people uh, became educated. Um, I'll give you an example. Like people would see me on the street and they'd feel bad. And even if they gave me money the day before, here's a couple hundred dollars. Look at you, go get a hotel room, go get a, and eventually they, they realized if they gave me money, it might hurt me. So they're like, uh, I'm not going to give you money, but are you hungry? Can I buy you a jacket? Can I, t- uh, so yeah, buy me food, buy me a jacket. They'd see that. And then I'd sell my jacket, and they'd they'd learn, they'd hear, and I, and ultimately they'd bring the food, and they'd give me the food, and I'd go sell it to a dealer. They asked me what I want to eat. I said, "Well, go get me some lobsters from Bamonte's," <laughs> you know, and they'd do it, and I'd sell the food. Ultimately, they would pass by and say, "Do you want to eat?" And I'd say, "Yes," and they said, "Well, you got to eat in front of us." Now I don't know about you, but uh, the last thing I want to do is eat. I don't care if I'm starving. If I eat, it brings my head down. I'm out here. I ain't going home. That's the last thing I need is food, even though it's the real thing I need. And they, they wouldn't give me anything, but I, it, it was a progression of, of education. Yes. Yes. You know, I read in one of the articles online that you lost your sister, Gia, is that the proper pronunciation? Yes. That you lost her to addiction. Tell us a little of that story and how that impacted you. Okay. Uh, well, uh, actually, at that time, right before it happened with Gia, I, I had stopped drinking again, which I always did in between. My life got better. I was doing better. I opened a pizzeria in Manhattan. Uh, my partner was my brother-in-law and a, uh, a very big cocaine dealer. <laughs> I still didn't drink or get high. And then I started. And I rented this really nice apartment on, uh, I think it was Sutton Avenue or First Avenue. Beautiful apartment. FBI, security building, a lot of UN people, which is kind of weird because I'm in there. And... Uh, and I'm getting high, and I'm drinking, and I, I called a girl, uh, paid for a girl to come over, and we're smoking. And I remember I had the Motorola phone, the flip phone, the big, heavy phones. And Gia called me and said she wasn't feeling well. And her husband, Michael, was in Israel because he was an Orthodox Jewish person. Uh, he was in Israel telling his family that he's marrying a Goyim. I don't mean it to be funny. I mean like a non-Jew. Uh, it's just a term they use. And Gia stood there and, and was pregnant and having a miscarriage, and she took some pain pills. Uh, Gia had 
a minor, well, she had a problem with pain pills. Um, but anyway, that night she called me and said she wasn't feeling right. I don't think she knew she was having a miscarriage or uh, she just had stomach cramps. But then when she took the pain pills, she didn't realize she called me and I was too busy for her. I said, I'll call you back. Ten minutes later, I ran out of money again and I just wanted to get high and I sold the phone for a $10 hit because those phones are charged per phone. So I had like $800 left. I think she gave me a $10 hit for that phone. I never heard from my sister again, but four hours later, I called my brother-in-law for money, and he and he told me about Gia. I mean, or the next day, told me about Gia the night before. I was the last person she talked to. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have time to hear how she wasn't feeling well. What did that do to your world? Well... You know, it has a lot to do with, I had a lot of many awakenings or uh, many contacts with God uh, when I was right on the verge of realizing what I had done. I heard the voice inside of me say, listen, if you love me, if you love me, Don't worry, I know you. Just do what you can do to make your life better. And it was like, if you really care about me, then don't worry about what happened. Care what I care about for you. And it was like at that moment, all guilt and... uh, I I don't know how to explain it, but it's it's like I had a choice to to feel guilty or to trust that my sister loved me. I know my sister. She wouldn't want me to feel guilty. It's the craziest thing. It's like I, I, I assumed her, her, a, a part of the spirit in her, a part of her, into me, and I trusted it. I, I know it sounds crazy, but... Yeah. Uh, there, there was a passing of peace of some type there. It's, it's like she, you know, God stepped in with her, and 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 I couldn't deny it because I'd be lying if I said my sister would want me to feel guilty. Yes, it doesn't mean I don't have remorse. There's a remorse there, but it's not in the sense where I sit. Like I talk to Gia, I talk to God at night. I, Hey, this might sound really weird, but the one of the things I never did with my mother, my sister Gia, or my sister Tina, and I hope to dance with my sister Lorraine or Marianne one day, they always wanted to dance with me at parties, and I thought I was too cool to dance. So, I don't know, like in this last 21 years, sounds silly. One night I, I don't know, I got this sense, and I, I got up, and I, Put on my headphones and I danced with my mom, my sisters. It sounds so stupid, but it no, it, it, it isn't stupid to me. No. And my cats were. It was almost like they were dancing too in the middle, and they're looking at me like, "What's he doing?" And they were liking it, and I danced with them. I, uh, yeah, it's like you they connected in a very positive, positive way. way. And. Uh, yeah, that had to bring about some change, some hope and peace. Uh, the struggles you went through during the addiction, uh, you know, 
sleeping in subway tunnels. You already mentioned your oh. feet without shoes in the New York City winters and how nasty they can be, stealing from family and everything that goes with addiction. But I did, and I chuckle a little because this got me. I saw where Tabasco uh, became important to you. Or, yeah, help me with that. Okay. It, all it, it just gave the word. Where, tell us about Tabasco sauce, I'm assuming, yes? A cousin of mine owned a bar, and I had been doing good again for a little while, for a long enough period to be kind of, people weren't scared that I was going to the bar. And I got friendly with the bartender. And I started drinking, and I started getting high, and uh, I'd go to the bar, borrow some money. But it wasn't like I was really bothering anyone. So I'd go to the bar, and one night I was there, had no money. I mean, it was far from my house. It was still in Long Island. Then I'd take a train in the middle of the night to Brooklyn and Manhattan. and But I go to the bar, and no one's really there that I could borrow money from. But I hear these two people talking about pay you $100 to, to drink that Tabasco sauce. And I jump right, I'll drink it. And they said, right. you drink that right here, but do you have $100? They said, yeah, they put the money out and drank. The, <laughs> drank. I would have drank the glass and all. <laughs> they don't know they got away. I cheated them. I would have drank the whole bottle just to get $100. Of course, with that kind of desperation. Oh, my God, it does $100 like $100 million. Are you kidding? <laughs> and, and I understand, correct me on this, I'm not real clear. Michael had his issues with drug and addiction, but found his help and hope through No, cr no he didn't. I don't think okay. Michael ever no. had a problem then with Then I alcohol. misread, so yeah. I'm sorry I mis, uh, you know, misstated yes. that. But he certainly had an interest in you and your struggle and tried he to did. help out more than once, right? You know, oftentimes, uh, you know, we were brothers, so there's, there's his way of looking at it and there's mine, and he has his story and I have mine. Uh, and I'm going to tell more of mine over in the future. But one thing I do like to say that sometimes I I feel that uh, some alcoholics uh, don't get the benefit of seeing. No matter what issues me and Michael might have had, he still had his own life. My father held him accountable for our family. He was a good fellow. By me getting high and drinking... Sometimes I have to look at it as what it did to him. I have to see it that way. He had his own problems. I mean, Michael was under FBI surveillance. He, he was, we were making over $100 million a year. He was in organized crime. Uh, you know, you got to be on your, on your, on your, you got to be set and aware of things and, you know, your life and death are, and your freedom is there. And, and all of a sudden, this kid that he trusted is, is doing these drugs and that, like, I'm, uh, he's got a family. He's got his own problems. And here I am drinking and getting high. I don't know what that did for him, but I, I know that he probably had some accountability that my father asked him. For that, and there was no answer. You know, so 
sometimes I feel I got the ability to see that because it might lessen some of the differences that might be valid too that I have. You know, maybe some things. Uh, you know, uh, he was he was a great guy. He did the best he could for me. They did really well for what they did. Um, and, you know, I, I have to know that. Uh, but not to diminish the fact that Michael lied to me. I lied to Michael. My father lied to me. My father lied to Michael. Michael lied to my father, and I lied to my father. We all lied in our own ways, but we lied to each other often. We could trust each other, but we lied to each other. There were a lot of things along the way that aren't said, uh, you know, um, a lot of things. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's, let's move ahead a step or two here. In a moment, I want to talk about that decision to turn state's evidence against your father, Sonny, what that was going to mean to his future and to yours. We'll follow that up with the, the effects that had on the family, what it did to relationships, how some reconciliation came about between you and your father and you and Michael. And then we'll talk about your faith journey. And I want you to let the folks know what your life's about today as we wrap this up in a little while. So thank you for this. Folks, tune back in next Friday for our uh, upcoming episode. It'll be episode number 58. We're going to continue with the story of Matt Pazarelli, John Franzese, being a former member of New York City's Colombo crime family. We're going to keep it personal. We're going to keep it real. We're going to keep it raw. Stay tuned. Thanks. God bless. Amen. <laughs>